And that's a difficult question. It really is. Because in truth, um, it's hard to come up with an answer. You know, you want to say your mom. And moms, they don't leave, not by choice. But there does come a day where moms got to leave. Some of us have experienced that. You want to say a spouse. Certainly my spouse won't leave me. Well, you know, that, that is a heartbreaking thing. When I've been there, when, when a spouse leaves another, and I'm with the one who's been departed from, and there's been no choice of theirs, they've resisted it with everything they could, but in truth, there was nothing they could do. You want to say your child. And man, I tell you, there's nothing like the hurt and the pain of a parent whose child is making a decision to depart from them. And I don't mean just going away to college as tough as that is, or the military or whatever, but I mean when the child makes a willful decision to rebel against their parent and and leave them. The truth is, there's only one person. There's only one person that you can truly say will never leave you, will never forsake you, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the truth that we want to see today is that kind of commitment of the Lord to us. That the Lord took on flesh, born as a child, grew to be a man, was committed to us through the shedding of blood even. And He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. We need a love like that. We need a love like that. Because we were designed to experience a love like that. You were made and I, we were made to experience a love that never goes away, that never ends, that is unending. You were designed for that. That's why you want it. That's why I remember as just a little kid, I remember in third grade, I was in love with Nancy Mate, no, I can't say it this time. No, no. I thought I was in love with the little girl that sat in the third grade classroom with me. You know, and I remember her walking by, and you remember that feeling like, I mean, you could actually feel your heart like speed up, you know, and you could, you could feel like your face getting warm because she was near, right? It's my third grade teacher. Boy, I was in love with her. No, it wasn't my teacher, but... <laughs> But we are designed, and and you see it in little kids. You see it in little children. They want want love. And then you see it as you grew older. And some of us, God, in His grace, gave us a spouse that we love. Some experienced a marriage and didn't go exactly as you wanted. Some are still wondering, will God bring someone across their path? So what do we say to this desire for love? What do we say for this hunger for an unending, everlasting love? We say, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Open up your Bible to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We're going to be here and we're going to look now at at one of the most intense moments of the human record we see some things that happen here in the life of Christ that are unparalleled in their struggle. You won't find, you will probably never experience the kind of agony and turmoil that our Lord went through on this night 
in Luke chapter 22. And we're going to see that, that this was such a dramatic and traumatic experience as Jesus looked forward to what was coming at the cross, that He experienced a, a turmoil that, that we will never walk through, most likely. And we know that this turmoil that the Lord was going through was, was centered around a few things. It was centered around the rejection of God. That God had to turn from His Son, who now was sin had to turn from Him because of sin He never committed. It's also wrapped up in love for us that God loved us to this level. And it is an amazing truth. We read last week, we were in Luke chapter 22, and we just to kind of put us back to where we were at, we're in the upper room. Jesus has been with His disciples for about three years. He's been telling them since Luke chapter 9, verse 51, about six months prior to this, He's been telling them, I'm going towards Jerusalem. And He's been trying to tell them that when He gets there, He's going to be turned over to sinners and they're going to kill Him. And He's going to die for sin. He's been trying to tell them that He's going to raise victorious over that death. But you know, the disciples, they just can't get it. They just can't get it. It's just like they've got this helmet of metal or steel and like these ideas just ping off of the helmet. There's no way that they're letting this truth come in. They can't understand that the Messiah would come and die in their place. They can't get it. But on this night, on this night, it's becoming more and more clear. So Jesus says in verse number 35 of chapter 22, He says to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they said. You took care of us. You provided for us. You were there meeting our needs. You loved us and we felt it. We saw it. It was here. We ate it. We wore it. We felt your love. He said to them, But now, let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled. And he, meaning the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of Man, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. We can see here in what Jesus said to His disciples in this moment that this is the definite turning of a page. There has been resistance to Jesus for the last three years. He has encountered opposition many times. But on this night, at this moment, there is a a page that is turning. And I want to walk through what's going to happen over the next couple of hours. You see, you know that we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're called the Gospels. They're the story of Jesus' life. And what you can do is you can read these four different Gospels and see the the account of Jesus from four different perspectives. Three of them describe this night in great detail. One of them just gives a few details. 
So we have a lot of information about what's going to occur. And I want to just walk through it first before we look at the rest of the passage here. I want to walk through so you get to full feel from all of the Gospels what happens. So Jesus and His twelve are in the upper room. They celebrated Jesus' final Passover. This great celebration from Jewish history is they remembered that God had delivered Israel from the bondage that they experienced in Egypt. And Jesus said, I will not celebrate this Passover again until we're with you in the kingdom. And so instead, they had this very loving, very meaningful meal around the table where Jesus explained to them that His body was given for all so that all could believe and that His blood would be shed for the remission of sin. And then Judas, the betrayer, leaves. He heads out the back door. Right before there's an argument about who may betray Him, Judas quietly sneaks out the door. And then the passage says that the men all stood up and they sang a hymn. Now that's kind of neat, isn't it? They all stood up and they sang a hymn together. And they headed out. They passed over the Kidron Brook into the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Now this was a, this was a garden scene, but don't picture like your cornrows and tomatoes. That's not what it is. It's, it's olive trees, which are rather large, beautiful trees. And this garden called Gethsemane Gethsemane means olive press. So there in these trees was this place that people would gather up, they would reap the olives, and they would bring there, and they would press out the oil. Tell me, that doesn't mean something. You know what's coming. They would press out the oil there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus and the eleven now arrived there, as was their custom. This was their favorite place to go in Jerusalem. They would go there and they would pray and Jesus would teach them. But on this night, He said, sit here and pray. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus looking at you and saying, you need to pray. You know, I've been in situations where I've said to somebody, hey, we need to pray. And it's almost like there's a serious moment. Now it's Jesus saying to the eleven, Sit here and pray. And pray that you may not fall into temptation. And so then we know that Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and they went off a distance from the, from the rest of them. The Bible says a stone's throw. So what that means is they were within ear distance. They could hear. They're just off by a little distance. And the Bible says that Jesus fell to the ground. He falls to the ground and He prays. And Peter and James and John are listening now. And Jesus is praying a heartfelt prayer. He's going to pray with such, with such dramatic feeling that soon He'll be sweating drops of blood. And this is His prayer. His prayer is, Father in Heaven, My Father, Abba. This is a, this is a term of affection that someone in that culture would use for their daddy. And the Lord's prayer in this moment when He's crying out to His Heavenly Father is this. If there is any other way, 
If there is any other way, if there is some other way possible for this to occur, let it happen. But not your will. Not my will, that is, but yours be done. And then he comes back to Peter, and they work their way back to the eleven, and they're sound asleep. And he says to Peter, I think Peter the first time stayed awake. And he says to Peter, couldn't you, speaking to the eleven, couldn't you sit with me for one hour? Do you not know what we're going into? And they kind of woke up and they felt, you know, like they'd been corrected and Jesus went off again. And a similar thing happened. He prayed that if it would be possible, this cup would pass from him, that it would happen. But not my will be done, but yours, he prayed. Naya comes back, and they're all asleep. And he wakes them up. And he says, guys, you need to pray. You need to pray that you do not fall into temptation. And pray with me. And he goes off again, a third time. A third time he prays. Now, they are fighting sleep now. And it's interesting to read the three Gospels, how, they just, how the, the fight over sleep is depicted. One time it says that their eyes were heavy. Another time it says that they were overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of sleep. You ever been there? Have you ever been so just sort of, you know, drawn out and stretched with emotion that all you can do is sleep? I've been there a couple times. And that's where they are. But one of them, one of them, is barely awake. He opens up an eye, and he sees Jesus there through the dark, through the mist, by an olive tree. An amazing thing happens. Only Luke records it. Luke was heavily influenced by the Apostle Paul. He also seemed to be influenced heavily by the Apostle Peter. And he says that an angel came and strengthened Jesus. An angel. God is answering Jesus' prayer. And an angel comes and strengthens Him. It's the word nourish. It means to give, give what is needed to, to build up strength. And then whoever it is sees Him, sees that What's happened is, is he's heavy laden. He's on the ground now. You need to know that it was not the posture of prayer to kneel in this time. If you were, if you were praying, you stood in this time. You would stand and pray. We think now prayer is a kneeling, but much of that is because of what we saw Jesus do here in the garden. He is on the ground now, thrown to the ground. And the stress of the moment was so heavy, his blood pressure went so high that the capillaries in his face burst, mixed with the heavy perspiration, and Luke, a doctor now, says that the blood dripped from his skin like drops, like great drops of sweat. And then Jesus comes back. He wakes the disciples says, it's enough. The time has come. The hour is at hand. Now get up, guys. Get up. Pray that you resist temptation 
My betrayer is here. And he points, and Judas comes towards him, kisses him, and Jesus is drug off and put to death. What a turn of events this is. Only a few days prior, when Jesus walked in Jerusalem, the crowds are crying out, Hosanna! Save us, Messiah! Save us! And now, He will be drugged through the streets and beaten. Now, what do we learn from from this account? What I want us to see today as we walk through Luke chapter 22, I want us to see dependence upon the Lord on display. I want you to see what it looks like to truly be dependent upon the Lord. And as we look to Jesus, we see His character. We see what when you really press Him down, okay? When the olive press presses Him down, you see what comes out. And that's the way life works. When everything goes against, when everything's pushing against, out squeezes who we really are. And we're going to see that here in this passage. And we're also going to see how it is that we are to pray. And what does it mean to pray? Is prayer just this religious activity that we go through and somehow like rub in a magic, you know, rabbit's foot, something good happens? No. And we will see that as we look at the prayer of Jesus. And we will see that prayer is more than just your words. Prayer is more than just your words. Now, prayer can include words, but I'm telling you, there have been some times when I have prayed and no words have come out of my mouth. And I have sat there before the Lord and I've just said, God, I need you. You ever been there? I trust it's not a regular occurrence, but for some of you it may be. A situation in your life that is so pressing that you don't have words to even express. And the New Testament recognizes that. It says in those moments, the Spirit of God prays for us because we don't even know what to pray. So God's Spirit prays for us. So let's look at this Garden of Gethsemane and see some things about prayer. And the first thing I want you to see is prayer means that we prepare realistically. Let's go back to that passage that I started with. Verses 35 through 38. We prepare realistically. Prayer is about preparation. It is. Jesus is saying, pray that you do not fall into temptation. Prayer is about preparation. I ask, who's praying for you as you go into temptation? I'd say if you're not praying for you, I dare say nobody is, right? Are you praying for yourself that you would resist temptation? That the thing that keeps on tripping you up, God would give you victory over. Jesus here says to the disciples, pray that you may not fall into temptation. But I want you to see what he said before that, because I find it very interesting In verse 35, we read it earlier, Jesus reminds the disciples that there was a time when He sent them out into the land and He said, you don't have to bring anything, guys. You don't have to to bring any extra clothes. Don't bring any extra money. Don't pack a lunch because I'm going to prepare for... I'm going to go ahead and and prepare things for you in advance. I'm going to provide for you. And so this was much earlier in the life of the disciples. When Jesus sent them out as 12 and then as 72, they would go from house to house to house and they would arrive there and they would, they would proclaim the gospel and some people would say, we believe too. 
Come in. We will feed you. We will give you a place to sleep. And they would go there, and that's where they would stay. And Jesus said, when that happens, go there and stay. And don't jump from house to house to house. You see this laid out in Matthew chapter 11. But Jesus says, it's not going to be like that anymore, guys. That's when he says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. It's not going to be that way anymore, boys. You're not going to be received with open arms anymore. He says, likewise, take a knapsack. Now, what does that mean for us? That seems kind of weird, you know, like a kid's book bag. Is that... No, what he's saying is, pack your bags. You're going to be on the run, is what he's telling them. You're going to be on the run, and you're going to be in danger of your life. And he says, if you don't have a sword, you better buy one. Now, that seems kind of strange to us, okay? seems kind of strange. Now, we know... We know that it can't mean that he's saying, strap on a sword and, you know, defend yourself. You say, well, how do you know that? Because one of the guys does, you see it in just a couple weeks, and Jesus heals him. So I believe what we have here, Jesus is using a metaphor of the day that's saying, you're going to be running for your life. How do you know that? Well, notice their reaction. They reacted the same way that we might. After he said all these things about the sword, the knapsack, the money bag... One of them, these guys crack me up. I mean, the 11 just crack me up. Sometimes they say stuff, just like me, that's so stupid, you know? They're like, uh, hey, Jesus, here's two swords. They speak up, look, here's two swords. Is this enough? Is this, will this do? And Jesus says this. What he actually says, that's enough of that. That's what that expression means. Where it says, it is enough. You see, you might read that and think it means, oh, two swords, yes, that'll be enough to defend us. That's not what it means at all. It means, that's enough of that, guys. Like my mom would come in the house, my brother and I are wrestling all over the place. She'd go, boys, that's enough, right? That's what he's saying. You, you missed my point. What we need to realize here is this truth. That this world, from this moment on, the Garden of Gethsemane on, it was before, but now in a brand new way. This world and our cultures that we live in are going to resist Christ. Be prepared. Be prepared. I'd like to say, I'd like to say, hey, go on out there, everything's going to be wonderful for you. But you would know, and I would know it was a lie. Jesus saying, pray, because you need to be prepared. Then in verse number 39, let's, let's keep going here and, and see what else happens. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place that they were going to, he said to them, pray, here we have this expression that you, you'll notice it comes up again and again and again. It comes up in all the Gospels. He keeps saying this, pray that you may not enter into temptation. At least three times Jesus said that to them. What I want us to see here is, is we think about prayer. See, one of the things I'm trying to, to make sure we understand is prayer is not just a litany of words. It's not, a, it's not a, a religious activity where you take a prayer and you read it and somehow God is pleased. You know that's how most people in the world think prayer operates. Most people in the world think that there's like some expression of words that we need to use, then, then the God that they think is real will be pleased by them. 
And that is not what prayer is. Jesus here is living out prayer. And the thing that strikes me about this is he's leaning, he's calling them to lean expectantly. And that's what prayer is. Is that's leaning on God, expecting Him to hold us up. Expecting Him to come through for us in a way that honors Him. To lean on Him. Where do you lean? Where do you lean? Some of us lean on loved ones. Maybe even in an inappropriate way. Too much do we lean on loved ones. Only God can fulfill the desire of your heart. Only God can deal with the pain that you're walking. Only God. Lean on Him. And I find it remarkable. He's saying, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, listen to this. And, and let, this, let this hit you like it hit me. Okay, Jesus has been expecting this moment. You realize, not for a couple hours, not for a couple days, not for a couple millennia. He's been expecting this hour since the foundation, since before the foundations of the earth. There is no time when God, the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't know this moment was coming. And in that moment, when He was thrown into the press of eternity, when there is a cosmic battle going on, when Satan himself now is coming to tempt Jesus to abandon God's plan, his heart goes to his disciples. And I would encourage you to consider John chapter 17, where Jesus, just an hour or two before this, is praying for us. Praying for those who would believe on his message. Jesus himself leaned on God, expecting him to work in our lives. Folks, the Lord Jesus Christ prays for you. He is the intercessor. He is our advocate at the right hand of the Father. You are loved by the Lord Jesus in that way. And that's not just a nice fluffy feeling. It's based upon God's Word. So you know that thing that you're afraid that if anybody knew they'd reject you or certainly somebody would hate you over this? God knows all that and loves you. Verse number 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down, he actually he fell down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Three times he prayed that prayer. Three times. The three different Gospels show three different spins on that prayer. And I don't think it was just limited to three times. I think that is his prayer the whole time. God, I would prefer not to walk this road but not my will. 
I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 5. Let me read this to you. It's verses 7, 8, and 9. Talking of Jesus, it says, In the days of His flesh, chapter 5, verses 7 through 9 of Hebrews, In the days of His flesh, in other words, when Jesus was, was in the incarnate before the resurrection, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I read that to you because I want you to recognize that God here is answering his prayer. He is. The Lord strengthens him. And Jesus, this prayer of dependence, where He's saying, God, I need You. I ask you, what what was it that was so bad that Jesus was walking into? I mean, why is it that this was such a traumatic moment? What did He know was coming? Now, our immediate thought is the cross. We're going to talk about the cross in a few weeks. Okay, we're going to talk about that in, a, in, in, in all of its medical detail. And we'll understand what Jesus went to on the cross. But I don't think that's what he was thinking of. You might think, well, it's death. Nobody wants to die. I've been there when people died. Everybody resists death. Nobody wants to die. Maybe that's what it is. Jesus didn't want to physically die. Well, Jesus knew he'd be resurrected. He knew the cross was short-lived. He knew that death was short-lived. So what was it that drove him to his knees, falling on his face, saying, God, take this from me if it would be your will? Folks, can I tell you? It is the gospel. It is the gospel. Let me remind you of truths that you know. The very truth that Jesus is now laboring over. He labored over this fact. He labored that all mankind are sinners. And that the wages of that sin is death. And that He would find in His body the very payment for that sin. Jesus was made sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He was made Sin for us. A lot of people had this idea that the cross erased sin. It didn't erase sin. The cross did not erase sin. The cross paid the penalty for sin. There's a word that none of us use unless you happen to be preaching a sermon on this topic. And it's called propitiation. 1 John 2 says that He is our propitiation. Your translation may call it something else, like atoning sacrifice. But here's what that means. Let me tell you what that means. It means that for all of creation, God had been storing up wrath. Because He is a holy God who made man with the free will, who was able to abandon Him and sin against Him. And it angered God. 
And you can understand that. You can understand that sin angers God. You may say, well, that doesn't seem fair that God's getting angry over sin. Really? Tell that to the one who was sinned against. Tell the wife who's hit by her husband. Don't worry, God will look past that. Tell the child that's abused by a loved one in ways we don't even want to fathom. Tell them, oh, don't worry, God will look past that. No, 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 no. If God just forgot about sin, it would make Him a horrible figure that was fine with sin and was fine with punishment, but He's not. Instead, Jesus Christ became the propitiation for sin. That's the recipient of the judgmental decision. That's what it means. He is the recipient of the judgment. He was made sin. Okay? He experienced the wages of sin. And now he experiences the full weight of the consequences of sin. Have you ever felt really, really guilty? Like, one of those times, you might have to go back to when you were a little kid, okay? You might have to go back to like being just a, just a small little child. I can remember breaking into my grandmother's house. This is, this is not just a cliche. I remember breaking into my grandmother's house to steal cookies from the cookie jar, okay? I really remember doing that. My cousin and I would break into my grandmother's house. We'd have to lift the window in my uncle's bedroom and climb in. And we'd go into her kitchen, okay? And we would go to the old cookie jar and we would take a bunch of cookies that they seemed to always be there. You know, not think about it. She probably had it set up all that time. She probably baked those cookies, leave them there so we'd come and get them. And we'd take a handful of cookies, being stupid kids, go right out the same window, who knows why, and climb up on the roof of her house and eat those cookies. I remember doing that, I mean, just so clearly. And one day, now, my grandmother was a short little thing, okay? Five foot tall, all right? But she could spank like crazy. And I remember one morning, we had been up on the roof and stole the cookies and came down, okay? And you probably had cookie crumbs all over her face. I don't know. And my grandmother's there, talking to my mom and my aunt. They're all in the kitchen. And grandma's like, you know, I made a bunch of cookies last evening, and they're all gone. And I remember Sherry, that was my cousin. Sherry and I are there in the, in the other room listening. Okay? And we're just little. I mean, you know, probably like 8, 9, 10 years old. And Sherry was a female, obviously. Um, more prone to tears, I don't know. Um, but I started crying. I don't know what it was. But I just, I mean, I just heard and I, I could feel these tears coming out. And finally the two of us went out and just, you know, let our soul loose. And it felt so good. You ever been there? Okay, imagine. You're the creator of the universe. You have never known sin. Sin is, it's, it's not just something you don't do. It is something you are incapable of. Jesus Christ could not sin. He is God. 
And now the full penalty of sin is coming on him. And he prays dependently. God, I need you. I need you. Lean expectantly. Ask dependently is what we're talking about. And then 43 through 46, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven. The angel strengthened him. And being in agony, this is a great word, it's heavy anguish. Okay, it is, it is, a, it is an emotional word. Alright, this word agony. It, it's not just things really stink. It is a word filled with heavy emotion and dread about what is coming. And what's it do? It makes him pray more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And what I love here is there's a decision that happens between 44 and 45. It's not there. It's it's not in your Bible, okay? But there's a decision. You know, you realize He is God. (laughs) He is sovereign. Jesus, very well, as far as I know, I mean, nowhere in the Bible has explained this, but as far as I know, Jesus could have said, enough, enough, no, this is too much. They aren't worth it. But in that moment, right before verse 45... A decision is made in the heart of a man on the ground in a bloody, tearful mess. And his decision is, I will rise to what I am called to do. And he stands up. He rises up. He came to the disciples. They're knocked out of sleep from sorrow And he says, guys, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What I want you to see here is prayer. It allows us to continue hopefully. Not hopefully, but hopefully. Meaning full of hope. Full of hope. We can move forward. We can keep going. You don't just lay on the ground and cry. You can get up and go because God is in control and we move forward. What's the thing you're concerned about? Oh, maybe you're not, you know, bleeding drops of blood. I get that. But are you, be, are you feeling pressed? Are you feeling pressed? Lean here on Christ. Ask dependently. Lean expectantly. Keep moving forward. Be prepared realistically. Know what's coming. Move on. I want you to think for a minute, and I want you to seriously consider what is the thing in your life that most is pressing upon you? A person? A circumstance? Some unknown thing? A fear you have about tomorrow, next week. A child, a spouse, a parent. Something that you're truly waiting for. 
You know, for me, I'm coming to understand that following Christ involves a lot of waiting. It does. And I can be an impatient person, but it can be waiting. I want to throw a verse up here on the screen. See, Ephesians chapter 3, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. What is that power? That's the Spirit of God conforming us to the image of Christ. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Just this past week, well, it was a couple weeks ago, I was sitting and, and just feeling kind of burdened about some things in my life. And the Lord just... I mean, I didn't hear any audible voice. Don't worry. But God started speaking to me through His Word. And, and it became like a prayer for me. Okay? And I want to share this with you because I just think, you know, some of us, we're burdened and we don't, we don't really know how to pray. I mean, I, I, I want you to think about something that you're burdened about and you say, well, I don't really know. I don't know what to pray. I want to help you. Okay? We'll start out and I'm going, to, I'm going to put some verses on the screen. It might be helpful for you to write these down and look at them later. You won't have time to write the words down, but you can write the reference down. But I started that morning in Hebrews 13.5, where I'm told that Christ will never leave me. And so what this means is, I can be content, no matter what may come. The child may never turn. The spouse may never come back. The job may be lost. The house may be foreclosed. Whatever, that could come. But I'll tell you something that's never going to come. Jesus is never going to depart from you. You can be content because He will never leave you. So I started there that day. And then I turned to Matthew chapter 6, 34. And I said, I will have no anxiety about tomorrow. I'm not going to get stressed about tomorrow. I, I'm not going to do that. Nor, Luke 12, 22, I'm not going to get worried about the details about this day, quite honestly. I can't change tomorrow. And I'm not going to worry about the things of this day. Because God's going to take care of me. I know He's got tomorrow. I know He's got today. I know He's here with me. So I'm not going to worry. Because the truth is, Matthew 7, 11, Reminds us of a great truth. The love that I feel for my kids, because I'm telling you, I'd jump in front of a bullet in a second. I'd cut off a finger in, a, in an instant. I'd live 20 years of struggle for my kids, and so would you. But that kind of love, that is nothing compared to God's love for us. If we being sinful creatures can love our kids that way, how much more does the Father love us? So then I went to Jeremiah 17, 5. And I said, you know what? So here's the thing. I'm not trusting in man. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in any person. I'm going to look to the Lord. That's where I'm going to look. So my burden, Psalm 55, 22... My burdens that I have, I'm casting on God. Right now, sitting in my couch, 6.30 in the morning, I'm casting those on God. My anxieties that I'm feeling, okay, because they're there, 
1 Peter 5, 7 tells me cast those as well. I will cast my anxieties on Him. Why? Because of the truth in Proverbs 16, 3. The proof in Proverbs 16, 3 that says that, that everything, I'm going to commit everything to You, Lord. I commit it to You. Now, I know from Job 13.5 that bad stuff can come, okay? That can happen. But even if I lose my life, even if I lose my life, I will still hope in Him. Why? Because my request, they want to they cause me anxiety, but I'm going to present those to Him. I'm going to leave those with God. I'm going to leave these things with Him. And what's He going to do? He is going to guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4, 6. And that's Philippians 4, 7. What great truth. I cast that onto Him and He guards my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. And I close that day with the truth from Ephesians chapter 5. Listen to it. But God, being rich in mercy. See, I don't get what I deserve. Rich in mercy. And because of love was not enough. You know that? Look at that verse. Love was not enough. When the Lord wanted to describe His love for us, love wasn't enough. He needed a stronger word than love. And you know what He said? Great love. Because of great love, He has saved us. This is the advocate that we have. This is the ally in the battle that you feel like you're fighting and is pressing upon you, and you have something that you feel like may be too much. Cast onto Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, hear our prayer.